Tale of the Quasi-Catfish, Part 3, The Finale It became clear Howard hadn't read a majority of my texts. When I mentioned this or that, he seemed to have never heard the information before. So I'd just been talking to myself. It explains why I had such a nice time. Alternating between amazed and horrified at the grandiosity of my delusions, I couldn't help but feel impressed. My ability to romanticize and idealize a situation was remarkable. Imagine if I use my powers for good. Suppose it's a good quality for people that like to create. Bringing non-existent ideas to life solely through unwavering belief makes invention and creation possible. In this case, however, it landed me in a stinky townhouse an hour outside London with someone I'd normally not spend more than five minutes talking to in a bar. I tried to bias myself to like Howard, considering the situation, but there was just no way. He had a fake handicapped parking badge in his car. I'd seen a man do this once before. He'd rationalized that he only used it on residential streets when he couldn't find parking. I wasn't his moral authority, but it was telling he immediately felt the need to vindicate himself. Obviously, it's immoral, but I guess the harm done in that particular scenario isn't totally morally bankrupt. However, Howard used his several times to park in handicapped spots when there was only one and many normal spots available nearby. Mortifying. As we drove down streets around the townhouse, he'd make comments complaining about the entire neighborhood being full of low-class people. Why are British people so obsessed with class? I was reminded of one of my all-time favorite books, Shantaram, by Gregory David Roberts, that I picked up in my first year of high school. My elderly English teacher showed our class the book and said it was the first good book she'd picked up in a long time. I admired her and immediately went to get it. Over a thousand pages. I was not prepared. I think that was the first big grown-up book I ever read, of my own volition or otherwise. The book is a fictionalized memoir, and in it, the main character lives in an Indian slum. His writing beautifully shares how people with nothing often have the biggest hearts, sense of community, and humanity intact. I immediately imagined Howard's disgust at lower classes as directed towards the kind people living in the slums in that story, and I hated him. I guess that's where my brain goes trying to think of what low class means. Makes me picture a country with a caste system heavily embedded in the culture. Perhaps Britain is like that too. Perhaps Britain brought it over. I haven't done my historical background research on this one, but I want to say India has an equally long cultural history of caste systems. In any case, I'd never look at someone next to me and think they were low class. I may dislike them, but the thought of rank superiority doesn't enter my brain. Over the course of our many months texting, Howard would make the odd racist joke about this or that, and I thought he was being satirical and poking fun at political correctness. Comedy has a place in every taboo subject. That's the point of comedy. That's also what makes it funny. Turns out, his jokes were just plain old racism. Felt my hands reactively cut my cheeks in horror a few times. It was far from funny. Often, he dunked on his own race, which he said he decidedly didn't feel he belonged to. Made me feel sad. His racism was just a subconscious self-hatred of his own identity. He'd look at me, wanting me to laugh at the horrible remark he just made, and I'd stare back with a blank face. Woof, man. Woof. Felt so uncomfortable. He was a literal demon in human flesh. After a day and a half, I initiated the uncomfortable talk, saying I felt we were just friends. His demeanor changed. 
I should add that I bought a UK SIM card before leaving and bought a second one in the airport in case the first one didn't work. It's not my first traveling abroad rodeo. Neither SIM card worked, and I turned off my Canadian SIM card to try the UK ones. None of them worked. Headache. There was no Wi-Fi in the slum house because no one was living there. I tried to use the hotspot from Howard's iPhone, but that also wouldn't connect. I had no way of messaging anyone or looking up train schedules or anything. It wasn't a priority for Howard to aid in me fixing my phone, but we got help at the end of the second day. Turns out, the VPN I had on my phone was disrupting the sims. Even though I turned it off, it was trying to auto-connect in the background. Maybe that's a useful tidbit for you in the future, reader. The app needed to be entirely deleted from my phone for the sims to work. I finally messaged my friend, who rightfully thought I was dead given my lack of communication since the airport, and explained the situation. I bought a ticket to meet her in Scotland in a few days when she was free to welcome me. Howard made several comments that I should go to my friend's house earlier if I wanted. The next day, even. It was obvious that because I said we weren't going to date, he wanted me gone ASAP. I sort of couldn't believe it. I could have gone to a hotel for the next two evenings, but that seemed so extreme and rude. We'd spoken daily for six months and couldn't handle a few days together? That's insane. I kept thinking I could turn the experience around. Why not have fun hanging out? He'd said we would enjoy time together regardless. Clearly, that was also a lie. I felt like a very unwelcome guest, though he refused to admit that was the case. The next evening, I was in a pub with Howard having a chicken burger when I got a text from my friend. She sent screenshots from her employer saying they'd misunderstood that I was Canadian. They were scared of COVID, and if she allowed me, a foreigner, to have contact with her, she wouldn't be able to go into work while I was there and for two weeks after. Since they couldn't afford to be that long without an employee, they'd have to let her go and find someone able to work. They hoped she understood. So if she welcomed me, she'd be fired, and she couldn't afford that loss. My stomach sank. I need to get some air, I said as I stood up from the table. Okay, can you pay the bill first, though? I forgot my wallet. I looked at him, smirked, and said nothing as I stood there looking back at him. That's what you do when someone lies. You don't say anything. You just keep looking at them. Then the real answer came. Come on, I saw how much you make on your website, so dinner's on you. And there it is. Not a clue what my reality is, just assumptions and an opportunity. I giggled, again, unable to restrain myself at the absurdity, said nothing, and paid for the food. Initially, when I planned the trip, he assured dozens of times he would handle whatever costs while we were together as I delivered myself to him. For argument's sake, aside from whatever money he spent on gas, there was just food, and he didn't drink. We both had just burgers and water, but still, what else did this man expect of me? Don't think I felt like that big of a nuisance to someone in a long time. I walked outside, stared into the landscape, trying to think of something, but my mind was blank. Howard joined me outside, and before I could tell him what had just happened, he took the opportunity to give me a lecture. You know, Sienna, you have a poor attitude. Really, you've not been a very good guest. I've gone out of my way to welcome you, and you've not been appreciative of me and my efforts at all. Oh, I wasn't showing enough gratitude for the sacrifices he'd made to make this nightmare possible. Of course. I wasn't in a laughing mood this time. Felt hot and sweaty. I explained the situation with my friend and apologized for our miscommunication, entirely disinterested in trying to protest my position. 
There was no point in wasting breath on this man. I don't argue with idiots. My instincts had tried to warn me this train wreck awaited. Wowza, were they ever right. What a clusterfuck. Went back to the slum house with the gremlin and cried for three hours in my dirty room, for which I was not appreciative enough. He seemed distraught half hearing my sobbing. To be fair, I don't sob often, and if I do, it's only when I'm alone. Howard came up once or twice to see if he could do anything. He tried to bash my friend for being irresponsible and did his mental midget best to comfort me. Sir, you are the real nightmare, is all I wanted to say. But alas, I didn't think that would have improved the situation, so I just cried and said I'd talk to him the next day. Woke up early, saw a text from my best friend saying to not let the trip go to waste. Turn it around, he said. Okay, I can do this. Figure something out. Cannot return to Toronto like this. This was currently the most depressing story ever. <laughs> I did feel better after all that crying the night before. Very cathartic. Let me see. Checked Airbnbs all around England and Scotland for something available for a month starting in a day or two. Lots of options, but not everything was easily accessible. I hadn't planned on a lot of solo travel. Didn't have the most efficient luggage setup. Then, I saw a quaint little place available in two days in a random coastal town I'd never heard of. Put in a request. Reservation accepted. Okay, there's a plan. Didn't know the purpose of me going there, but I'd figure that out. I hadn't worked almost all year. I'd been writing and helping others. For the first time since I'd started working when I was 15, I'd intentionally not worked a job and lived off savings. I was 29 the first time I managed to save enough money to not work for several months. My several months was up, though. It had been up a while ago. I hadn't planned on traveling around a foreign country exploring. I planned to stay at a friend's place and write. The next two days with Howard were... I don't know what you'd call it. Toleration? Waiting for time to pass? We went for a few drives to random towns. He'd mention the bathroom cleaning a few more times, and I'd mention we needed to get cleaning supplies a few more times. On the last evening, he gave me another speech about how I was ruining our time together and could have a better attitude about it all, and still hadn't cleaned the bathrooms. <laughs> Honestly, I was putting in a lot of effort to be pleasant. I think he didn't know how to process the situation at all and just blame me for his discomfort or discontent with things not turning out as he planned. He told me I had no idea what the real world was like. My life was just a bunch of men paying exorbitant amounts for me to do nothing. I didn't know what it meant to work or struggle in life. He was by no means poor, mind you. Pretty common take to tell a prostitute she has no idea what the real world is or what it looks like. Total lack of understanding the marketing I did as a prostitute was to make the job seem effortless and pleasurable to attract clients. It wasn't a reflection of reality. Reality wasn't sexy. No one wants to hire the prostitute, saying she's straight up only there for money, hadn't had a client in weeks, looked forward to the feeling of relief that came when the client left, hoped the sex didn't last more than 15 minutes, and pretended to not exist in her own body to fulfill the fantasy. It doesn't make you all hot and heavy to think about it from that angle. You just wouldn't see an escort market herself that way. It would only exist in her brain and perhaps text she sent to a friend. As soon as we got back to the slum house, I walked to the closest convenience store, upset, and bought cleaning supplies. I saw wine and thought, yes, please God, anything to make this man tolerable for one more evening. 
went back and he was surprised I got cleaning supplies. Told me I shouldn't have, like I got him a present and said I didn't need to do that for him. The fuck? Whatever. I'd clean tomorrow morning before leaving and I'd enjoy my wine for now. He mocked my purchasing wine for the second time since arriving several days ago. Said it wasn't good for me to drink that often. I nodded as I poured myself a glass. Every day like clockwork, he'd drive to the store in the early evening and buy a bag of chocolate, candy, and soda. That was his dinner. It explained why we only ate together once a day. His second meal was plastic and sugar late at night. I felt grateful he was able to notice my unhealthy drinking habit and lead me down a better path. We watched Peep Show, same as the other nights. Peep Show and wine is a good time for me. I felt relaxed. After an hour or so, Howard tried to make a move on me. Out of nowhere, Foley tried to stick his hands down my pants, missed, and instead just groped me from the outside. I had a glass of wine in my hand, didn't move, and just sort of looked at him. He was averting my eyes, hoping I'd get into it. Yeah, you know, it would be really nice if you decided to respect my decisions and boundaries. I felt like a parent scolding a retarded child. He let out a sigh and shuffled back to his side of the bed that we were sitting on. We sat on one of the beds watching TV because, like I said, there were no communal living areas other than the kitchen and bathroom. I got hungry and there was no food in the house, so I grabbed one of the million pieces of sugar plastic and tried to enjoy it. Yuck. Tasted like banana butthole. A 32-year-old man bought this for dinner. Ugh. I looked over at him and he was taking a selfie. Very particular angles. Duck lips from a distance in the corner. I giggled and asked him what he was doing. He gave me the middle finger. I think he was taking new photos to sign up to a dating app right there and then. How pathetic. I mean, I was never going to touch him, so why not? In that second, though, it was that pressing. The next morning, I pretended my train was hours before it actually was just to get away from the source. I tried to escape after coffee by walking to the train station 20 minutes away, but as I said bye to Howard, he refused to let me walk because I had two pieces of luggage. Man, I really didn't care. I was dying to lug these babies down the street. He insisted he wanted to be a gentleman and drive me, except he hadn't gotten out of bed yet. So he proceeded to go upstairs and take a 30-minute shit as I just sat there in the smelly hallway waiting for him. Just sat there wondering why the fuck I was waiting for a man to take a shit upstairs so I could savor the sweet, sweet taste of freedom. We arrived at the train station and he got my luggage out of the trunk. Ugh, man, this trip shouldn't have been like this, Sienna. I know I had to make a lot of calls and stuff, but it wasn't meant to be like this. How about once you're settled, maybe I come visit you for a day or two. What you think? Where are you staying again? I said the name of an entirely different town in an entirely different part of England and said maybe he could text me. He drove away and I felt amazing. Got some food and waited at the train station for three hours. Nice day. Big, open platform. Had a nice time basking in the feeling of freedom. Noticed how much more I appreciated my freedom because it had been temporarily restricted. Seems to be what it takes, doesn't it? Something has to be taken away for it to be fully appreciated. Must remember to appreciate freedom even when it's not immediately at risk. My Airbnb host met me and gave me the keys. She was an artist or fashion designer or something. Very stylish, yet eccentric with an amazing energy. 
Her vibes and the vibes of the home were soft and loving. I had completely forgotten the nightmare and was overcome with feelings of calmness and safety. I was excited about my new home for the month. Instantly felt like I'd get a lot of work done there. I spent the month almost entirely confined to the Airbnb, aside from my daily walks along the sea for a couple hours. Blissful. That experience with Howard and my friend bailing on me was so bad that my brain refused to get upset. Instead, I couldn't stop laughing about it. I had some good cries too, but they were followed by hysterical laughter. Somehow it flipped a switch in my brain that told me I had nothing to lose by doing things that mattered to me. So the obstacle was the way, as Ryan Holiday and Stoicism would say. Every problem presents an opportunity, and it's always our choice if we decide to see it. I can't regret it because my discomfort made me happy to start publishing my writing. As I left the Airbnb at the end of the month, I walked through the town towards the train station and realized something. It was while in the UK nine years ago that I'd started sex work because I was broke and couldn't find a reason not to give up on myself. Couldn't find a source of meaning. Gave up on ever finding any. Accepted that ensuring survival at any cost was all there was. Now, again faced with not having much to my name, I had the same decision to make. This time... I choose to find real meaning, whatever it takes. Won't believe the lie that survival necessitates the familiar hell of unwanted sex for money or any other soul-destroying betrayal because it secured temporary sustenance. Anything was better than betraying my soul in that way. I'd rather this shitty job if it meant my energy stayed just for me. That's all that matters in the end, connection to your own soul and protecting your light. Why did I share this story? Needed to tell somebody but also to show how escorting for so long affected me in this specific way. I don't know if I would have so desperately believed something so ridiculous had I not denied myself the possibility for a real relationship for a decade. I don't know. I know many women experience similar delusions without ever having done sex work. My story just happens to include it. I wonder how much sex work affected it, if at all. I know it's not the same for everyone, but for me... Choosing to escort went hand-in-hand with not considering a real relationship. I wasn't intentionally not choosing a relationship. I was intentionally choosing to do everything myself and not consider anyone else ever being in my life. I didn't see the point of dating someone. Everything was about survival and not living my real life anymore. The real me would have never had sex with all those people I didn't know or like. I wonder how much of my hyper-independent girl boss mentality was a result of subconscious social programming, or my childhood, or escorting, or personal preference. Why did I look at other women who strived for marriage and kids as a primary goal as pathetic for the majority of my life? I thought they were using those reasons as a cop-out to them having to put the work into finding real meaning in life. Where did that come from? Why did I believe that? Why did I now feel differently? Why did I wake up to the lies? My desire to be a solo-empowered female doing it all herself is likely a mix of all the reasons I listed. Despite not finding what I was looking for on this occasion, I'm glad I know that marriage and motherhood are in fact hugely respectable sources of meaning. It's okay to not want that as well. Just ask yourself if you're sure those are your true feelings or if maybe you're being influenced by something. Stay curious.
Oh, my back. 